Well, if you would turn in the Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 5, we continue our sermon series that we're calling Dispersed as we made our way through the book of 1 Peter. Have one more week after today in this book. I'm going to read verses 8 and 10 to begin our time in the Word together. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. We believe that the Bible is God's word. We really believe that here. And we believe that we need the Bible. We need God's word more than we need anything else. The psalmist says that it is a great treasure, more valuable than silver and gold. It is more sweeter than honey. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to stand here and see the church with the Word of God. But I do want to say something as you stand with the Word of God is Satan hates what's going on in this moment. He despises it. And he rages against it. And that's why we need the very worst verses that we look at at this time. Verse 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Oh God, I pray today that we would be strengthened, established, restored by your word as we look to the day that we will be finally established cemented, concreted in the glory of Christ forever when he comes to take us home. And God, we know that day is coming because you sent him to die for our sins. We know there is a day coming where all things will be made new because he has been raised and seated at your right hand. God, there is a new day dawning and I pray today it dawns in our hearts and I pray that the forces of darkness shriek and shudder and tremble. And I pray that we would stand firm in our faith because the gospel is true. Jesus is Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do you believe in ghosts? Now, this is a question that I get a lot as a pastor. And I never expected that that would be a question I would be asked so often when I went into the ministry. It, it seems as though now, every other week during access, I'm asked that question. They're laughing because they know it comes up quite often. Do you believe in ghosts? Actually, my first house call as a pastor, if you want to call it that, was to a home of a lady that believed her house was haunted. And she had called the priest of the area and they had sprinkled holy water all over the place and it didn't work. And so I guess she thought she'd call the Baptist down the road and see what we could do. And I was 
a young youth pastor, maybe 23, 24. No, I was actually 21. Uh, I forget how old I am now, but that's how old I was then. And I walk into the house, have no idea what to say to this lady. She recounts the smells and cool air that's moving through the house at times, creaks at night, and it was just her and her two small children, and she really was scared to death. And I didn't know what else to do, so I just shared the gospel with her. I just talked to her about how she could believe in Jesus and have her sins forgiven and know that she was going to heaven when she died. And it was the Spirit of God that led me to read Romans chapter 8 to her because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't have any special potions or special prayers or incantations. I wasn't there to exercise any demons. I didn't know how to do that. And so I just started reading from Romans chapter 8, really in disbelief at what she was saying. And I got to verse 38 and something began to dawn on me as I read, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'll never forget as I read those moments and I got, as I read those verses in that moment, I got to that point and said, you know what? I do believe in ghosts. Now, I don't believe in Casper. But I do believe that there is a spiritual realm that is even before us right now. The Bible teaches that very clearly. We hear that here. These forces, these powers arrayed against the church, arrayed against Christ, arrayed against Jesus. We see that in the Bible. And to deny that there are forces of darkness that are arrayed against the church, even in this moment, right now, Satan hates what's going on here. And there are systems at work in the heavenlies to oppose what's going on here. We have to believe that. The Bible teaches that. That's what the whole book of Ephesians is written about. And so, in some sense, we do believe in ghosts. But the way we handle that makes all the difference in the world. C.S. Lewis once wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelief in their existence. So one error we fall into is to act as though there are no devils, there are no demons, there are no spiritual forces. And the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So the other error is to be fixated on them. To be fixated on Satan, where you are distracted from things of Christ. And he continues to say, they themselves, which is Satan and the demons, are equally pleased with both errors. And hell, a materialist who doesn't believe in supernatural or spiritual beings, or even a magician in the same delight. And so Satan is pleased if you don't believe in him. That's okay. He's also pleased if you are fixated on him. And if you tremble in fear, always looking for a demon behind every bush to exterminate. 
Those are two different errors that we can fall into as Christians. And when we get to this section in 1 Peter, he gives us a very healthy view of spiritual warfare. Notice what he calls us to do in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Now that's a very important phrase throughout Scripture. To be sober-minded. What sin does to us is sin makes us drunk on ourself. Where we think the world revolves around us. And to be sober-minded, to think clearly, is to remember what God teaches us in His Word. Jesus is King. I'm not the center of the universe. And to be sober-minded is to see all of life through the lens of Jesus' authority and lordship. And he says, be sober-minded, remember who is king, and be watchful. Now that is military language. You are to be a soldier who is alert, who is on guard, who realizes you are in a war. And notice your adversary, your opponent, this is a legal term, one who presents arguments against you, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, be alert because you have an enemy. And your enemy, the devil, the evil one, he is out to present charges against you, to accuse you. That is his role. And he is on the prowl like a roaring lion. And so be awake. Be alert. You are in a war. There is spiritual warfare that is going all around you. And he is ready to pounce and destroy you. Realize, Satan's mission is to destroy your faith. Satan and the forces of darkness. There are systems in the spiritual realm designed to prove to you this is fake, this is false, Jesus isn't real, to distract you from his lordship. And one of the things Satan does in the life of the church is he destroys the faith of those or the, the seemingly faith of those who believe the gospel. Peter writes this from experience, by the way. As Jesus is going to the cross, he turns to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. And notice Peter, who is not alert, who is not sober-minded, who is a very aggressive and courageous man, but he doesn't understand what's before him. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. How'd that turn out for you, Peter? And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will crow this day until you deny me three times, deny three times that you know me. So Peter writes this from experience. And the word Jesus used here to sift he said to Peter, Satan wants to sift you. He wants to prove if you're real or if you're fake, if you really believe what's going on, if you're really a follower of Christ. And the same thing is going on with some of you here today. Satan wants to prove you're fake. He wants to sift you to see if this is real. Because if he can prove you're a fake, if he can prove this isn't real, 
He can accuse the whole system of being false, the whole kingdom of being fake. And that is his mission in the world. And some of you here today, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan comes to them and he says uh, concerning the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, he, he comes to them and says, has God really said? Has God really said that you can't eat of that tree? And the same question is in some of your minds today. Has God really said? Has God really said to you, you this whole Christianity thing, you're going to follow Jesus? Has God really said that that's the only way of salvation? Has God really said, take up your cross and follow him? Has God really described a Christianity that will cost you something? Has God really said you should be sexually pure? Has God really said you should love your wife as Christ loved the church? Has God really said you should submit to your husband? Has God really said you should give your money to this? Those are the questions that are going through some of your minds here today. And you know what's going on? You're being sifted. You're being sifted to prove if you're real. The, the next thing Satan did in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he, he came to them and he said, you know what? In, in commanding you not to eat of the fruit, God's holding something from you. He, he doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. There's something good over here he's keeping from you. And, and that's the same question that's going through some of your minds. Is God really good? I thought following Jesus would fix all of my problems. I thought when I became a Christian, my marriage would get a lot better, and it hasn't. I thought when I became a Christian, my finances would look a lot different. I thought when I became a Christian, I, I would, things would change. It would be easier. And, and what's going through your mind is, is God really good? When I chose to follow Christ, my life got harder. God must be holding something from me. You know what's going on? You're being sifted to prove if you're real. To prove if you're real. The other thing Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden is he said, you know what? God's holding this from you because he knows when you partake of it, you'll be like him. You, you'll be king and you'll know right from wrong and you'll get to call the shots and God doesn't want you to call the shots. And that's what's going on with some of you here today. You want to call the shots. And Satan is saying to you today, hey, you should be king. You should have it your way. You should be able to do whatever you want. He, he, God, God's holding something from you. He's not good. You should be able to call the shots. This whole love your enemy thing, that's too hard. You shouldn't have to do that. You should be able to pick and choose who you forgive. You should be able to pick and choose who you forgive. Loving your enemy, you shouldn't have to do that. And you know what's going on? You're being sifted. You, you said, I'm going to follow Jesus and become a Christian, and Satan is making a play for you. The forces of darkness can't stand you. They can't stand the preaching of the gospel. That seed of faith that's in your heart, Satan wants to come and take it away. And all of these questions are going through your mind. You are being sifted by Satan. And so Peter says, wake up. Wake up. Jesus died for your sins. He's been raised from the dead. He's given you an eternal kingdom. And there's nothing better than that. Stop doubting the gospel's truth. Believe it. 
Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Notice as the passage continues. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Now the word resist here, it is a very aggressive word. It it, it is an aggressive approach to your faith. It means to stand firm. It it, it means to, to be planted, to be firm in your faith. But faith, in some sense, is a passive thing, right? So so there's two phrases here. There's an aggressive approach. Resist him. You stand up to him. But you do so in faith. Faith is confidence in another. Faith isn't confidence in your strength. And we see here the heart of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is ultimately a faith issue. It is a heart issue. Whatever is swirling about, whatever's going on, it comes down to those questions we were just asking. Will you believe God is good? Will you believe His Word is true? And will you follow Him no matter what? Spiritual warfare is an issue of faith. Will I resist Him and stand strong? Isn't it interesting as Peter has described suffering all the way throughout the book that he doesn't put it in the context of spiritual warfare to the very end? And and it's just a couple verses. Because he understands that's not the issue. Peter says, I've been through the battle. I've been sifted by Satan. I denied Jesus and I've been restored. I know what this battle is like. And it just comes down to believing the word of God. It comes down to hoping in Jesus no matter what. It comes down to being willing to follow him and give him your life because you believe his word is true. And the essence of faith, it's not this strength within you, this personal grit. Jesus even describes it as a childlike belief in a father where where you know your father is good and he is big and he is strong and he is kind. And so like a little child, you just trust him. And that's what faith is. And that's where the battle is. This is all through the Bible. There's a call to be strong and courageous. Go to Joshua. Be strong and courageous in the Lord. Believing his promises no matter what. And that's what he's calling the church to do here. This aggressive approach. You've got to be aggressive in your faith. You've got to get focused. You've got to be aware. But but you've got to focus on what Christ has done and trust Him and believe in Him. That The goal of spiritual warfare is not to prove your faith is true, but to prove the God who has given you faith that He is true. To prove the God whose faith you're in is true. To believe His Word no matter what. And and you know, so often when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's it's the sound of our own voice that has the lisp in our head. Some of us here today were worried about the voice of Satan, serpent. But do you realize that you listen to yourself more than you listen to anybody else? That you speak more into your heart than anybody else? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, once said this, Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life, listen to this, is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You know how that works on a daily basis, right? You are in a very passive state most of the time 
listening to the worst case scenarios that you are just feeding yourself with your mind. How is this going to turn out? It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. Oh my goodness, what is that person thinking about me? And then you fill in. You listen to yourself as you describe things that aren't even true, that aren't even reality. And and Martin Lloyd-Jones would go on and he would say, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. This is where the battle rages, with yourself, your own faith. You take it yourself in hand and you have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are thou downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, unbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, And then you must go and remind yourself, get this, of God. Who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. And then having done that, at the end of this great note, defy yourself, defy others, and defy the devil and the whole world and say this, man... I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. You see how that works? Shut up, self. Jesus is Lord and the gospel is true and God is good. You should say that to yourself a lot. That's, read through the Psalms. What is David so often saying? Self, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. You know why he has to say, soul, bless the Lord? He has to step out of himself and say, soul of David, bless the Lord. Why? Because he doesn't want to bless the Lord. People are hunting him down to kill him. His own son stabbed him in the back. He's lost his kingdom at times. He's away from the city. And he says, oh, I still have to praise the Lord. I can't just listen to myself. And by the way, this is why you, yourself, must be full of the Word of God. Because that must be what you are preaching to yourself. The Word of God. This is a plug for Awana. Get your kids at Awana. They need to be full of the Word of God. Memorize. How often do you memorize the Word of God? How often do you just implant it in your heart and your mind? Because someone who is full of scripture, when you begin to talk worst case scenario to yourself, you're able to turn to yourself and declare the word of God to yourself. Preach a sermon to yourself based on the word of God. Instead of passively allowing your thoughts to frame your future, you preach to yourself. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. And he will also, who who has given us him, graciously give us all things. Preach the word of God to yourself instead of passively condemning yourself. Oh, you don't know what I've done, self. Do you remember we... The sin we've been involved in that night, those moments, and you stop and you preach to yourself, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You you look yourself in the mirror, driving down the road, look in that reverie mirror, and preach. 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Not even self. Not even self. Romans 8. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Not even my own thoughts and my own hearts can condemn me. Why? Because the word of God tells me Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So as you allow your heart and your mind to intercede for you and tell you that you're condemned and to bring about sin that happened in the past that has shunned you from God, you stop. And you remember and you preach to yourself, Jesus is at the right hand of God and he is pleading based on his life and his death for me. You have to stop and you have to preach that to yourself instead of listening to yourself. Preach to yourself. Instead of passively listening to yourself, explain all the ways God doesn't love you. You stop and you say, who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing will separate me from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Look yourself in the eyes and say that quite often. Have you ever done that? Just look yourself in the eyes. God loves you. Jesus died for you. You get to go to heaven when you die. Oh, what joy that would bring instead of just passively listening to ourselves and our hard hearts that are full of sin. That's where the battle rages. And then he also says, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he puts this in the context, spiritual warfare of suffering and persecution. It does seem to be that the forces of darkness are involved in the persecution of Christians. And as we said before, it does seem to be that they are out to prove Christianity as untrue. It's it's not that Satan is out to just stamp out and kill every Christian. No, he is out to prove that those who say they're a Christian will not suffer for Christianity. That's what he's out to prove. And he says, that's what you're involved with, is to prove you're a fake, you're artificial. And that's why you're being persecuted, is to prove you're false. And he says, by the way, that's going on all around the world. Your brotherhood, your family. And, And this is why we must be acquainted with the sufferings of our brothers and sisters around the world. We must be. Spend time this week and read about Christians in East Asia. Pastors being arrested because the Chinese government hates real Christianity. They're disbanding churches all over the place. And we're sending missionaries there, by the way. Read about Christians in the Middle East who are being beheaded for their faith. You, you got to know that's real. And the forces of darkness delight in it. And, and, and he says, do not be shocked by it. There is a war raging. And there are people who have aligned with the snake and there are people who have aligned with Jesus, spirit-filled witnesses all throughout the world proving this is true. And that's why it's going on. Thomas Brooks once said, if God were not my friend, Satan would not be so much of my enemy. 
How much of an enemy is Satan of you? Satan could care less about Christians who care less. He's got you right where he wants you. You don't care. You're proving this really doesn't make that big a difference. But those who are on fire for Jesus, who love the word of God, who are living out the gospel and they're ordering their lives in light of all this, he hates it. He hates churches that preach the gospel. The more we preach the gospel, the more people we reach, the more Satan's going to hate us. The more we're going to have to believe this is really true. Really believe it's true. And Peter says, that's what's going on all over the world, but I got good news for you. Notice verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. Remember last week at the proper time? The, the words here that describe the time frame. At the proper time, he will raise you up and exalt you. And then he says, in a little while. He says, the suffering that you're going through in light of eternity will only seem like a little while because this is what's going to happen. Notice, the God of all grace. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that phrase. Just look at your Bible. Look at your Bible. The God of all grace. Unmerited favor. Who gives you things you don't deserve. That's who he is. That's what he does. He's full of grace. He's full of things you don't deserve. And he gives it to you lavishly. Who has called you to his eternal glory. His eternal kingdom. And notice what he personally is going to do. All the sin. All the suffering. All the difficulty. He himself will restore you. He will make you complete and perfect. He will finish the job. If he called you to himself in Christ, he ain't going to stop. He's going to finish the job. And notice he will confirm you. He will set you fast. It's like being, it's like being set in concrete. You will be established in all of his grace for all eternity. You will be strengthened. You will be sturdy. You will, you will be established. You will have a foundation for, for the rest of eternity. But notice again what Peter is getting at. Where does the battle rage? Do I really believe this is true? Do I really believe God is a God of all grace and is going to finish this job? As you look at your sin, as you look at your life, it's not what you want it to be. You're not who you want to be. Do you believe God will finish the job? He will establish you in Christ forever and you will be like Jesus forever. It's coming. Do you believe it? Is that where your hope is? That's where the battle rages. And it's all of grace. It's all of grace. You don't deserve it. Think about this. If God called you to himself by grace, you didn't deserve it because of your sin, he's going to finish the job with grace. Your sin right now hasn't nullified what God did when he called you to Jesus. Some of you believe the gospel. He said, this is great. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. And now you're struggling with sin. And you said, okay, what happened to grace? Nothing happened to grace. The same grace that saved you is going to deal with the sin that you're dealing with right now. And the same grace that saved you is going to get you to heaven. Your sin is what makes grace grace. You don't deserve it. And he's going to do it. He promises to do it. And the picture here, notice as he talks about being uh, restored. 
set fast, made sturdy, strengthened. The picture here is of a bone that's been snapped. And it's the picture of a bone that would have been crooked. And to set the bone straight, you have to break it. And when that bone is broken, pow, it hurts. It's painful. There's a scream. There's a sharp sting. And then the bone is put back in place. And as it grows, it's calcified. It's stronger than it was before it was broken. And that's the picture of heaven that Peter paints for us here. Heaven, in heaven, you will be unbreakable because you've already been broken in Christ. Do you get that? You've been broken by sin. That's what's going to make heaven glorious. Is because you're there because of grace. And you're going to look back on sin and heaven's going to be all the more glorious because you were once broken. You don't know what it's like to be restored in grace unless you need to be restored in grace. You don't know what restoration is from sin unless you're a sinner. And that's why heaven's going to be great. It's because you're going to look back on the moment of pow. This life is the pow. The breaking of the bone. And it hurt. And it stung. And it's painful. The suffering of sin. Difficulty in this life. It hurts. But a million years from now, you're going to look back. And you're going to say, this place is all the more glorious because of the pow. Because of the break. Because of the suffering. And you're going to delight in Jesus for eternity because of the break. Because of the brokenness. Andrew Peterson, probably my favorite Christian. If you don't listen to Andrew Peterson, you don't like the way he sings, you probably don't love Jesus enough. <laughs> Just listen to him for his lyrics. He says this in one of his songs. Don't you want to thank someone for this? And when the world is new again and the children of, of the king, this is a powerful phrase right here, are ancient in their youth again. How beautiful is that? That you will grow old in youth in heaven? Anyway, I don't, can't preach a sermon on that. Maybe it's a better thing, a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. You know love because you were broken in sin and didn't deserve love. And you will know it forever. Heaven will be better because of the sufferings of this life. You will deal delight in grace more in heaven because of the momentary brokenness of sin. Some of you are here today and say, oh, I'm so bad. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the things I've thought. You don't know the things I've felt in my heart. You don't know how bad I am. You don't know how broken I am. Oh, there's grace for you. In a million years from now, you're going to look back on this brokenness and you're going to delight more in Christ because you were broken. We're going to delight in redemption because we know the pain of death. Some of you have experienced the pain of holding your loved one's hand. 
as they slipped into eternity. And it broke your heart. And you can't imagine anything more painful. Oh, a million years from now, a hundred years from now, you're going to look back on that moment and you're going to look around to the new creation where all things have been made new in a place where there is no death and there is no suffering when Jesus walks right up to you and wipes those tears from your eye and you're going to look back on that moment and you're going to say, oh, this is even more wonderful. I know the grace of redemption because I was broken in that moment of suffering and death. The issue is, do you believe it? That's what Satan wants you to forget about, is what's coming to you. But will you hold on to it? And the greatest wounds that, that we endure here are the wounds for Jesus. I believe we will have scars in heaven because Jesus stands at the right hand of God right now with scars on his hands. And there's scars that tell us a beautiful picture of redemption. And there's pain and suffering that you're enduring right now that you will look back on in heaven and it will cause you to love Jesus even more. And the greatest of those scars are the wounds that you endure for following him, for suffering for him. You're going to look back in those moments where you're alienated, you're seen as awkward, you're seen as weird, you're seen as a freak. Christians right now, brothers and sisters around the world who are being chained, who are being beheaded, who are being crucified upside down with hot boiling water poured down their throats so they can't preach the gospel again. Oh, those wounds will be glorious one day because they were wounds for Jesus. Amy Carmichael, a missionary who suffered greatly, wrote a poem. Toward the end of the poem, she says this, Has thou no wound for following Jesus? Has thou no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that followed me, but thine are whole. Can he who followed far, who has no wound, or no scar? What wounds do you have? What scars will you have? Satan is intent that you have no wounds and that you have no scars. Jesus is intent that for eternity you will delight in the scars and look back on wounds for him. Do we believe in ghosts? Yes, we believe in ghosts. And the worst ghost of all, our sin has already been crucified with Christ. Let's pray.